Welcome. Thanks for tuning to Impact. Our mission is to love, learn, and serve. And now, here's the message. Pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, we come to you in Christ's name. And we thank you for the wonderful privilege that you give us today to hold a copy of your word in our hands and to open your word and study your word without fear, Lord, of our government coming after us because we do so. Lord, thank you for this privilege and we want you to bless us as we study your word. But we know, O oh God, that you cannot bless us for simply studying your word. If we don't have the intention of carrying out your word and living out your word and obeying your word. So, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would hide your word on our hearts over these next few minutes that we have together. I pray, Lord, that we would not simply believe it, but that we would practice it. That we wouldn't simply believe it, but that we would live it out. Lord, for our good, for the good of those around us, and for the glory of God. And all God's people said, Amen. Okay, church, it's confession time. You ready? Here's the question. Honestly, how many of you have ever participated in a food fight? Raise your hand. Come on. Let's be honest. Okay, who needs to confess you're lying right now? I'm pretty sure more of us than that have done that. As a kid or as a teenager, how many of you have participated in a food fight? Come on. You know, sometimes the spaghetti just kind of has a mind of its own and accidentally ends on top ends up on top of your best friend's head, right? It, it happens. Uh, sometimes that vanilla yogurt, it just for some reason flies out of your hand and goes soaring across the cafeteria, right? It happens. And so, you know what? Food fights are pretty common. But about 30 years ago, there was a food fight that made national news. And it was kind of odd because the details of that food fight fight, for the most part, weren't really unusual. Lee Thoss and William Thocker got in a little scuffle at the cafeteria food line. You see, William didn't like the way that Lee was picking out pieces of lettuce in the salad bar. So they started to exchange some words. They started calling each other names. And before you knew it, they were pushing each other and even punching each other. And one of the guys even bit the other guy. And so that's not too unusual, right? But it made national news. Why? Well, it made national news because this particular food fight took place in Florida at an upscale retirement home. You see, uh, Lee Thoss was 60. Let me make sure, sure I get this right. He was 63 years old and William Thocker, 85 years old. 62 and 85. They get in this food fight. And it just goes to show you, just because you grow older doesn't mean you grow up, right? Just because you grow old doesn't mean you grow up. And the same could be said about many Christians today. Warren Wiersbe says it really well. He writes, spiritual maturity is one of the greatest needs in churches today. Too many churches are playpens for babies instead of workshops for adults. I am convinced that spiritual immaturity is the number one problem in our churches. Is Warren Wiersbe right? Maybe. But I sure hope and pray that spiritual immaturity is never the number one problem in this church. Amen? Now that I think about it, I'm not quite sure what I wish the number one problem in this church was. 
But I don't want it to be spiritual immaturity. And so what we're going to do over the next couple months together is dive into this great book of James. The series is called Faith That Works. We're going to open up the book of James together and do a verse-by-verse study through this amazing, powerful, challenging book. James is a rather short book, only five chapters. But if you want to learn how to grow up as a Christian... And learn how to live out your faith in the real world. The book of James is a great place to go. The book of James is for you. Over the next couple of months, we'll be diving into this great book together. And we'll put, be putting wheels to our faith. Believing in God is so important. But it doesn't do us or anyone else much good unless we're living out that belief in the real world. Amen? Amen. So please... Pass those message notes down to those in your row. The message notes are on that aisle seat. Pass those down to those in your row. Also, get out your Bibles. Open to James chapter 1, verse 1. If you didn't bring a Bible with you this week, we encourage you to bring it with you next time. And uh, we do have Bibles, by the way, in back. If you don't have one of your own, we'd like to give you one as a gift today. But uh, in the meantime, grab one of those blue Bibles from the rack in front of you. If you're using one of those blue Bibles, you'll find James 1 on page 11. Page 1196 in those blue Bibles. I'm calling today's message, Turning Triumphs into, excuse me, I should say this, Turning Trials into Triumphs. Say that with me. Turning Trials into Triumphs. One more time so I don't mess it up again. Turning Trials into Triumphs. So whenever we begin a new study of a book of the Bible, I think it's a great idea to ask and answer five key questions because we want to have a bird's eye view of the book before we dive into it. So we want to know where we're going and what we're going to see along the way. So these five questions are, number one, who wrote it? Number two, to whom was it written? Number three, when was it written? Number four, why was it written? And number five, my favorite question of all, why should I care? Amen? And so we're going to answer these questions one at a time. Question number one, who wrote the book of James? Well, this question is actually a little tougher to answer than you might think. The name James is a very common name in the New Testament. In fact, there are four different Jameses in the New Testament. So which ones of these James wrote this particular book? Well, if you read the five chapters of James, it's pretty clear that the one who wrote this book had authority in the early church. He had some position of leadership and influence in the early church. So because of that position of influence and authority, it quickly rules out the two lesser-known James because they weren't leaders in the church. They were just lesser-known guys mentioned once, and then we don't hear about them again. And so that narrows us down to two choices. The first of those Jameses that was well-known in the early church was James, the son of Zebedee. He was one of the original 12 apostles. In fact, of the 12 apostles, he was in the inner three at times. It would be Peter, James, and John. And if you were to slide in a fourth to go with him, you might slide in James. And so he was a well-known apostle. He was a respected apostle. He was a leader in the early church. But there's one problem with James, son of Zebedee. The problem is he was one of the first Christians to be martyred for his faith. We know historically that he was killed in 44 A.D. by King Herod. And so 44 seems too early for this book of James to have been written. And so that leaves us with James number four, James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ. And so most scholars today believe that James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ, wrote the book of James. We read about James for the first time in Matthew 13, 55, where he's listed as one of Jesus' half-brothers. We know that Mary and Joseph didn't have sexual relations before Jesus was born, right? Right. That's why we say that Jesus was born of a virgin, 
The Bible makes that clear in Matthew and in Luke that Mary had not had any sexual relations when she gave birth to Jesus. But it's clearly implied that after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph came together and they bore biological children between the two of them. And so Jesus had at least four half-brothers, just like for him, Mary was mother, but because Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit, those that had Joseph as the father were actually just half-brothers of Jesus. James was one of those. We read in John 7, verses 2 through 5, that when Jesus was doing his ministry, uh, James and his other brothers didn't believe in Jesus. They thought he was kind of losing it. And so he wasn't a believer and follower of Christ during Jesus' ministry years. But we read in 1 Corinthians fifteen seven that after Jesus rose from the dead on Easter morning, he made a special appearance to James. He revealed himself in resurrected form to him, and James became at that point a believer and follower of Jesus Christ. By the time we get to Galatians 2, 9, Paul calls James a pillar of the church. We read partway through the book of Acts that James was actually the key leader in the church in Jerusalem. So long story short, although James didn't believe in Jesus until after Christ's resurrection, James eventually had both the position and the influence to write this book of James, this powerful book called James. So I think this is kind of neat that this book was written most likely by the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Question number two, to whom was the book of James written? Well, take a quick look at verse 1 of chapter 1 there. It says there in verse 1, it's written to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. The only problem is we have no idea what that means, right? It's written to the 12 tribes. What does that mean? Well, here's what it means. In Acts chapter 8, verse 1, we read that a few years after the Christian church began in Jerusalem, that this great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And so it says in Acts 8.1 that all of the Christians, except for the apostles, were basically chased out of town. And so all the non-apostle Christians were chased out of Jerusalem, and it says they spread into the surrounding regions of Judea and Samaria. As time rolls on, we get to Acts chapter 10, and by the time we get to Acts chapter 10, not only had they gone to Judea and Samaria, Christians had started to migrate all the way to northwest Asia and even into Europe. And so as we study this book of uh, James... He is writing to these Jewish Christians that were scattered throughout the known world. And so it's written to Jewish Christians everywhere, whether they were in Israel, Judea, Samaria, or to the uttermost parts of the earth. They had been scattered, but he wanted this same message to go to all of those Jewish Christians. And because he's writing to Jewish Christians, that's why in these five little chapters, he has allusions to 22 different Old Testament books. He wanted his readers to know that the things he was saying in this book of James were solidly grounded in the truth of the Old Testament scriptures. So question number one, who wrote it? The answer is James, the half-brother of. Question number two, to whom was it, was, to whom was it written? It was written to Jewish Christians throughout the world. Question number three, when did he write it? Well, according to the Jewish historian Josephus, James, the brother of Jesus, was martyred in the year 62 A.D. So obviously he wrote this book before 62 A.D. Our best guess is he wrote it in the late 40s, some 12 to 13 years before he was martyred. So our best guess is around 49 A.D. he wrote this book of James. 
Now, there's a couple cool things about that. He wrote this in 49 A.D. That was only about 19 years after Jesus hung on the cross. So that's pretty cool. This book's written within 20 years of Jesus hanging on the cross. And something else I think is really interesting about that, if this was written in 49 A.D., this was most likely the first book of the New Testament to be written. Isn't that cool? So over the next couple months together, we are in all likelihood studying the very first book that was written in the New Testament. I think that's pretty awesome. And so question number four, why did James write this book? Well, I think the historical backdrop of the book of James is pretty interesting. You see, when James wrote this book, Rome was an occupying force in Israel. They had become an occupying force long before Jesus was born. And so Rome came in and basically came in with their military and they set up shop and they pretty much did whatever they felt like doing. And one of the things Rome did as an occupying force is they snatched up land in Israel. And so I want you to put yourself in the shoes of a lower, maybe lower middle class Jew in Israel in the time of James. You had land that was your ancestral land. Your mom and dad had been on that land. Your grandparents had been on that land. Your great-grandparents had been... Your great-great-great-great-grandparents had been on that land. It was your rightful ancestral land. But all of a sudden, Rome came in and they said, we kind of like that land. We're going to take it from you because you don't make much money. And so what happened in the days leading up to James writing this letter is the Rome came in, they snatched up much of the land in Israel from the lower class individuals, lower middle class individuals, and they sold it to the highest bidder. And some of those that purchased this land in Israel were non-Jewish from outside of Israel, but some who purchased that land lived in Israel, they just happened to make more money. So imagine how you would feel if you had your ancestral land, you're basically kicked off of it by the Roman occupying force, and they turn around and sell it to your Jewish brother who lives across town in the upper middle class part of town. You might be a little bit upset about that, wouldn't you? You might be a little upset. And he says, you know what? You can stay on this land as a tenant farmer. You can work this land and keep a little bit of what you grow, but I get the majority of it. Now, that would kind of stink, wouldn't it? And so that's kind of the historical backdrop of the book of James, class warfare. There was class warfare going on in Israel. The rich were exploiting the poor, and the poor were resenting the rich and feeling bitter toward the rich. And unfortunately, that class warfare had seeped into the church And so you read in the book of James, certain sections in particular, James is going to talk to the rich Christians and say, do not exploit the poor. And he's going to at times speak to the poor Christians and say, you know what? Don't act like jerks around the rich Christians because we're all saved. We need to do this together for the glory of God. And so that's kind of the historical backdrop, which brings us to the theme of the book of James What is the message? Why was it written? Well, the theme of the book of James is grow up and live out your faith in the real world. Grow up and live out your faith in the real world. So question number one, who wrote it? James, the half-brother of Jesus. Question number two, to whom was it written? It was written to Jewish Christians throughout the world. Number three, when was it written? Around 49 AD. Number four, why was it written? So that we would learn to grow up and live out our faith in the real world. And the fifth and final question, my favorite question of all, why should I care? Ask that question with me, please. 
Why should I care? I'm so glad you asked that question. Let me answer it for you. Whether you're rich, no show of hands there, right? Or poor, some of you admit to that, or somewhere in between. The message of James is for you. Whether you're rich or poor or somewhere in between, your life has been and always will be filled with trials. Amen? Alan, is your life always going to be filled with trials? Alan specializes in spreading that message to people everywhere. You will have trials in this life. Oh, but those trials are so much easier to deal with when you've got Jesus Christ on your side. So we'll all have trials in our life. But if you're serious about following Christ, you need to learn what God expects of you during your trials. And the book of James teaches us how to triumph in our trials. You have to make sure the eyes in there, otherwise the blank is filled in with the word Trump. You know, so you got to learn how to triumph in our trials, to grow in our faith and please God in the process. Does that sound like a relevant message to you? Sounds like a relevant message to me as well. Let's dive into chapter one. James chapter one, starting in verse one. Please say amen if you are there. All right. James one one. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Well, today we're just going to tackle those four verses as we have our introductory message today. After giving us a quick greeting in verse 1, James jumps right into the main topic of the early part of chapter 1. He says in verses 2 and 3, Consider it pure joy, my brothers. Say that with me. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Notice how James addresses his readers here. In the early verses of James 1, he calls them brothers. So that obviously means, ladies, the message of James is not for you, right? Right? It's not what it means at all. He uses this term brothers some 15 times in these five chapters. This term brothers is a very affectionate term. It doesn't exclude the ladies. Ladies, the message of James is just as much for you as it is for the fellows in the room. But this word brothers in James' day conveyed this very warm, this very familial type relationship. James considered them family. They may not have been biologically family, but they were spiritually family. And he wants his readers to know that he considers them to be his family members. James writes, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now, what's a trial? Well, a trial is a test that normally comes from outside of us. Normally not something on the inside. That's more like a temptation. He'll talk about that a little bit later in chapter 1. But a trial is a a test that typically comes from the outside. It could come from another person. How many of you have ever gone through a trial because of someone around you? Yeah? Okay, everybody in the room. Sometimes that trial comes to us just because of circumstances. How many of you have had some crummy circumstances and you ended up going through a trial? So... 
Let me ask you, we all have trials in life. We all have these crises that come in our life. And all of a sudden, we're, we're going about our business. And all of a sudden, bam, that crisis hits us right across the face. When those trials and those crises come, what is the natural human response to this? Got some for us, DJ? Yes, that's the answer to your next blank. Our natural human reaction is to freak out. I'm being honest here, right? That's a normal human reaction. When we receive a utility shutoff notice, our natural response is to freak out. When the doctor tells us it's leukemia, our natural human reaction is to freak out. When our marriage is falling apart or someone we love is dying or we get an F on a midterm, our normal reaction is to freak out. Ah! The world's coming to an end. The sky is falling. Chicken Little and I have this in common today. We freak out. So what James says here in verse 2 sounds like fantasy land, doesn't it? It sounds crazy. It sounds crazy. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. Really, James? You've got to be kidding me. You've got to be kidding me. Milburn, can we pray for Michael? Okay, Heavenly Father, we lift up Michael in Jesus' name. And Lord, you know exactly what he's dealing with right now. You are the great physician. We ask that you would touch him in the way that only you can. Lord, identify what's going on. And we pray for healing and grace and strength in the name of Jesus. And we pray for Milburn and anyone who's helping right now. We love you, Lord. And we put this in your hands. And we believe in you to bring your perfect answer in this situation. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. What were we just speaking about? Trials? Things that come all of a sudden? We read James' words, and come on, many of you have read these words a hundred times. But honestly, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kind. We've got to say, James, have you lost your mind? Are you kidding me? It is not natural to have joy as a response to your gas getting disconnected in the middle of the winter. Joy is not a natural response. Joy is not a natural response to a doctor telling us you have 6 to 12 months to live. Joy is not a natural response to a husband telling you, I don't love you anymore. That's not a natural response to someone giving you that message. Joy is not a natural response to any of these trials that we suffer during this life. So as followers of Christ, we must make a conscious decision to do what's unnatural, to choose joy when trials come. And that's hard. But that's what James tells us to do. When facing trials, you and I must choose to face them with joy. It doesn't come naturally. It takes effort. It takes discipline. And it takes a whole lot of faith. Amen? But that's what he says to do. But why? Why should we choose joy when trials come? Well, James begins to answer that question in verse 3. He says, you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance. James basically says, Christian brothers and sisters, you know this. You know that trials teach you patience and increase your endurance to make you stronger. And these are all very good things. You know this. You just don't like to admit this. 
You prefer to avoid trials at all costs and cross your fingers hoping that you'll get better and stronger without them. Well, it doesn't work that way. If you want to mature in your faith, if you want to grow and become more and more like Jesus, there's no way around it. You have to experience trials. That's what James basically says to us here. There's no way around it. Verse 4, he says, Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, if we were to pick one verse in the book of James that's the theme verse for the entire book, it would be this verse right here. James chapter 1, verse 4. Perseverance must finish its work so that you can be mature and complete, not lacking anything. You know, if you're a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, you're a work in progress. You're a work in progress. I'm a work in progress. It makes it so clear here in verse 4 that God is doing a work in us. Jesus Christ is doing a work in us. Right, Chris? You with me? Awesome. He's doing a work in Chris. He's doing a work in you. He's doing a work in me. He's doing a work in all of us. He's methodically and carefully transforming your impatience into Jesus' patience. God is slowly and methodically transforming your tendency to give up into Jesus' tendency to press on. God is slowly and methodically transforming your crummy attitude into Jesus' attitude of counting it all joy. You are a work in progress. I am a work in progress. All of God's children are a work in progress. Amen? He's working on you and He's working on me. And I'm thankful. And my wife is thankful. And my daughters are thankful because I need a whole lot of working on. How about you? Warren Wearsby tells the story of a Christian man who realized that he needed to grow in his patience. He realized he was far too impatient. And so one morning he prayed this prayer. Lord, help me to grow in patience. I want to have more self-control in this area of my life. Many of you have discovered in your time of being a Christian that if you pray for patience, that's a dangerous thing to pray for, right? If you pray for patience, what does God do to answer that prayer? He puts you in a really trying situation, doesn't he? So this guy prays this prayer. Lord, help me to grow in my patience. I want to have more self-control in this area of my life. Wouldn't you know it? That morning he missed his train to work and he spent the next 50 minutes pacing the platform and complaining about his situation. Finally, after 50 minutes, the train arrived and the conviction hit him. And he said to himself, the Lord gave me nearly an hour to grow in my patience. And all I did was practice my impatience. How many of you can relate with that man? Sometimes God gives you those moments to teach you patience. And all you do is practice your impatience. As many of you know, we still have our church offices over at George Boulevard. I know what it is with that stoplight on the corner of George Boulevard and Air Expressway. But over the last few weeks, I've been sitting there and sitting there and sitting there. I got tired of waiting on Friday evening, and it's kind of a blind running of a red light, so I try not to do that. I don't want to get killed on Air Expressway. And so I actually put my parking brake on, hopped out of my car, ran over to the crosswalk sign, and pressed the button. 
And about 20 seconds later, the light turned green for me. But I tell you, I'm sitting there for two minutes oftentimes, pushing three minutes, waiting for the silly light to turn green. And I have completely wasted that golden opportunity for God to teach me patience. You're sitting there at Walmart in that line. How come they don't have more people doing more of these checkout lines? How come they only have two people? I see all these employees walking around and they're greeting me at the door, but why don't they work the cash register? And we get a little impatient. God gives us a beautiful five to ten minutes to teach us patience. And all we do is practice our impatience. Any of you ever driven that freeway? We call it the I-15. Ever? Anyone? Anyone? And I don't know what it is about that I-15. I don't know if Vegas is getting that much more exciting or what. But northbound I-15 is getting worse and worse every year. Maybe it's our Cracker Barrel. Everybody's coming up the hill to go to Cracker. I don't know. But you sit in that traffic sometimes 30 minutes, sometimes an hour, sometimes two to three hours. God is trying to teach us patience, and all we're doing is practicing our impatience. That hits close to home for me. When trials mess up our plans and trials mess up our schedules, Sometimes we spend too much time practicing our impatience, but God sent us that trial for a reason because he's doing a work in us to make us more like Christ. Now, what does James say is the purpose for learning patience and perseverance? We have to be honest when we tackle a passage like this. He says, I want you to understand these trials help you develop patience and perseverance. And some of us are inclined to say, no, thank you. I think I'm okay with my current level of patience and perseverance. Can I just pass on the trials and just stay at my current level of patience and perseverance? Because if I have a choice, I'll just stay how I am because I don't want to deal with the trials. But that's never an option for a follower of Christ. So why do we have these trials? Why do we have them? Because we have to develop perseverance and patience. And he says it even more clearly in verse 4. We are to become mature and complete. Not lacking anything. This word mature is an important word in the original Greek text. It's the word teleos. This word teleos is used several times in the Greek New Testament. One time that it's used by Jesus himself is a really important scripture. Uh, Remember the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' most famous sermon is in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And at the end of chapter 5, after Jesus has said, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, and all the things he teaches us to do in Matthew chapter 5, at the end of that chapter he says, now, bottom line, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He says, be teleos, mature, perfect as your heavenly Father is mature and perfect. It's the same word used here. So James says, God gives us trials to teach us patience and perseverance so he can finish his work of making us teleos, making us perfect, making us mature and complete, not lacking anything. Never forget that God is more interested in your character than he is in your comfort. Isn't that true? God is more interested in your character than he is in your comfort. Tell the person next to you, God is more interested in your character than he is in your comfort. Go ahead. No one shared that with Glenn over here. Crystal, turn around and tell Glenn. He needs to hear that today. (laughs) He said, believe me, I know. God is more interested in stretching our character, conforming us to the image of Christ. 
He doesn't want any of us to stay spiritual babies, drinking spiritual milk. He wants us to grow up. He wants us to grow in our faith and mature in our faith. And trials help us do that better than anything else. Why should we respond to trials with joy? Not because trials are fun. Not because trials give us an excuse to have a pity party and get everybody to feel sorry for us. We should rejoice when trials come for one reason, according to James, because they are tools in the hands of our loving God to make us mature and complete, just like Jesus. Growing in our patience, growing in our endurance, growing in our other character traits is priceless. Not only does this growth bring more peace to our lives, it blesses those around us and it pleases God. So bottom line is, if God is sending trials my way so I can become more like Jesus, so I can have more peace in my heart as I go through this life, so that I can be more of a blessing to you and to those around me, so that I can bring honor and glory to God, if all of those good results come from me experiencing a trial, then really I should be saying, bring it on. And rejoice when that trial comes because God is up to something really, really good. How many of you remember the 1970s TV series, The Six Million Dollar Man? Oh, yeah. That was the show. Oh, I just want to run across this room in slow motion. I'll be done by the end of the day. You know, they didn't have good enough special effects to speed it up and make it look realistic, so they put it in slow motion. That would convince us. Anyways, as a kid, I was watching the reruns in syndication there in the early to mid-80s, and I loved the Six Million Dollar Man. And I loved that opening montage where it tells the story of how Steve Rogers became the Six... Excuse me, Steve Austin, Lee Majors played the role. Steve Austin played the Six Million Dollar Man. Some of you remember that. He was an astronaut in a horrific accident. And after that accident, the world's greatest and brightest surgeons... And engineers came together and spent $6 million to create the first bionic man. He was reconstructed into the first bionic man. In that accident, he had shattered his legs, and so they rebuilt his legs as bionic legs. He had shattered one of his arms, so they rebuilt his arm as a bionic arm. And his eye had been, had been destroyed, and so they rebuilt his eye and replaced it with a bionic eye. And so he could run 60 miles an hour. He could take a steel and, and bend it with his bare hands. And he had the eyes and the vision of an eagle. He could see things that were hundreds of yards away that no other man could see. He was the first bionic man. And there in that opening montage, it says this. Remember what it says? Steve Rogers will be that. I said it wrong again, didn't I? Steve Austin will be that man better than he was before. Better, stronger, faster. I love that part. Better than he was before. Better, stronger, faster. And God really says much the same thing with you and me. I see how you are right now. I love you just the way you are. I sent my son to die for you. But I love you too much to leave you as your messed up self. I love you too much to leave you impatient. I leave, I love you too much to allow you to throw in the towel over and over and over again far too soon. I love you too much to allow your character to stay in diapers. I love you too much to, to, to have you stay the way you are. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put my Holy Spirit in you. 
and I'm, I'm going to put my son in front of you to lead the way, and I'm going to make you better than you were before. You're going to be better. You're going to be stronger, and you're going to be faster. He looks at me and says, Dane, you got some issues, so I'm going to make you better than you were before. I'm going to make you better, stronger, and faster. He looks at all of us and says, I'm going to conform you to the image of my son. I'm not going to allow you to stay the way that you are. You're going to be better, you're going to be stronger, and you're going to be faster. So when it comes down to it, the trials may stink when we're in them. But remember that God never wastes a trial in a Christian's life. He will use it for your glory. For the God that we serve is a good God. And he never wastes pain. He never wastes pain. He will use trials for your good. He'll use trials for the good of those around you. And he'll use it for his glory. So no matter how much it hurts, Christian, no matter how much it hurts to go through that trial, no matter how long it lasts, rejoice. No matter how unfair and and how unpleasant and pointless it may seem at the time, rejoice. If you are a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, your trial is in the hands of of a loving God. He's got this. And as you're following Him, if He's got this, then you've got this. So rejoice. Rejoice. Let's pray. Father, You are an awesome God that takes such good care of us. I I thank You for this beautiful and powerful and challenging reminder today. But even though trials stink when we're going through them, they hurt, they're painful, they're annoying, they seem sometimes to never end. I thank you that you never waste pain. I thank you for the promise from your word that you're always at work for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. Lord, we don't believe that every trial that comes our way was directly sent to us by you. Sometimes, Lord, the enemy may bring trials our way. Sometimes those around us may bring trials our way. Sometimes we just make dumb choices and bring trials our own way. But, Lord, you allow trials to come, regardless of the source. And whenever you allow that trial to come, I thank you that it has to pass through your filter of love for us. Lord, thank you that every one of our trials as we follow you can be in your loving hands, guiding us through that. So I pray, O oh God, for everyone today who's here and going through some sort of difficult crisis or trial. Maybe some here have received a shut-off notice in the last week. Maybe some have received an eviction notice. Maybe some have had their spouse said something to them that cut them to the heart And just tore them up on the inside. Maybe some have had their kids make some dangerous and and some horrific decisions this week. Lord, whatever those trials may be, health issues or marriage issues or financial issues, Lord, we pray that you would touch each person going through a trial right now today. Lord, that you would teach them patience that you would teach them perseverance and endurance. Lord, that you would help them to mature and grow. 
And whatever you need to teach us, I pray that we would learn that lesson quickly so the trial can end. Lord, I pray that the trial wouldn't linger any longer than it needs to. Help us to not be dense, but to understand what you're doing and to receive that lesson and grow and move forward. Lord, thank you for making us like Jesus, for conforming us to his image. We give you permission to continue your work. And Lord, if it takes trials to make us more like him so that we can experience life as you created us to experience it, so that we can be a blessing to those around us, and so that we can bring much honor and glory to you, then we allow the trials to come and say, bring them, Lord. Bring them, Lord. And teach us to rejoice in the midst of them. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We hope you'll be blessed by this sermon from Impact Christian Church. Please visit our website at greaterimpact.cc. God bless.